I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. You wanted more. Here is season four of The Connor, Connor and Smith Show. Thank you. Um, to news update, we this <sighs> podcast is about to enter Wales. Yes, yes. We are talking to Mark Evans tonight, currently about to reopen the Broadway musical. Drumroll, please. Mrs. Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. Um, and we're going to talk to him about his journey. Uh, he also... DC audiences might remember him as Cal from The Fix in 2015, I believe that was. Um, we're just going to talk about his journey and uh, catch up with him. We will take a quick break and be right back. Hello, do you hear me? I do. Do you hear me? I do. Hi. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, bud. Um, I'm sitting here with my husband and co-host, Matt Connor. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Mark, what's going on? Just sitting here, you know, in my living room. Just spilled a whole cup of water over my coffee table. Life is good. <laughs> are you in the new york right now i am in the new jersey about 30 minutes on the uh, on the train outside of new york we live in new jersey oh nice in west orange yes and you are um recently kind of recently married feels recently but also there's been a whole pandemic that started since then so it was september 2019 oh my god um, so congratulations two, thank you two yeah two and a half years now Wild. Isn't that funny? I uh, that's how time. You know, we've been in this living room for two years, so <laughs> it's it's. I'm like, oh, I think I think it's fairly recent. No, no. I know. What is time anymore? Hey? I don't know. Yeah, who wrote the fucking song? Time heals everything. No, it, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Fuck them. Fuck them. <laughs> um. So you are. Uh, you were in the uh, Mrs. Doubtfire on Broadway musical, and then things got shut down. Um, we're just going to keep trying. We're just going to keep trying with that show. <laughs> we did. So we did the out of town tryout in Seattle and all was well. And we were scheduled to come to Broadway and we went into rehearsals in January 2020. Um, and we were three previews in when Broadway shut down. Um, and then we were obviously on Zoom calls and keeping in touch, knowing that eventually the show was going to come back. And then September last year, uh, 2021, we went back into rehearsal studio for three weeks. The writers had taken some time to make some smart changes um, and improve the show. Um, a couple of casting um, additions. Um, and then we did seven weeks of previews, <laughs> rehearsing during the day, almost every day. Um, and then the show was finally frozen. We opened December 5th. And had to start canceling performances uh, less than a week later because of COVID cases. We were one of the firsts that were hit hard by um, the surges with the Omicron variant. Um, and yeah, I mean, 
that it just got to a place where we didn't have enough people to perform. And, you know, with new shows, they don't have the luxury of being able to call people who were in the show a few years ago or who have done the tour or whatever. There's only a small handful of people who know it because we only froze the show two weeks prior to the, to, you know, the Omicron variant coming. So there was a lot to navigate. And I think they lost a lot of the revenue they were hoping to get leading up to the holidays. And they were very frank with us and basically just said, um, if we don't go on a hiatus and basically we're technically closed the show January 9th for nine weeks to reopen it March 15th, they would have had enough funds to run an extra couple of weeks and then we would have closed for good. So, you know, it's it was tricky to think like, OK, we're all going to be, you know, on another shutdown. But I do think that it's very, very smart and very strategic to think that way because it's the only way that, you know, Broadway could survive. Right. We, were, we didn't have the audiences. And haven't uh, haven't other shows kind of adopted the Mrs. Doubtfire model of yeah, strategy? I think so. Um, it was very brave of Kevin McCollum, our lead producer, to, to make this decision. Um, you know, he was like, this is not, these are not normal times. Normally a Broadway show, you know, the theatres are all about, it's all about real estate. It's not always about the art and the creativity. It's like, oh, if your show is not making the money it needs to for you to be able to pay to be here, get out. But this is different because it's the audiences who aren't feeling safe to come. We had a huge advance of about five, six million dollars. There's the evidence that there's an audience for Mrs. Doubtfire, but there was a lot of refunds being requested. And we're a family show, you know, it's, a, it's an awesome option for grandparents to bring their kids and grandkids and come as a group and you know there's lots of vulnerable vulnerable people in there but you know the the numbers are declining with regards to uh, covid now and i think people's mindset is being adjusted around it um with this new variant and so we're hopeful that especially because it's spring break in march that things will start to open up and we'll stand a a better chance of, of running successfully. Uh, you know, Kevin said it's like planting a, a sapling in a hurricane. We have to remove it, put it somewhere safe until the hurricane passes, and then we'll try and plant it again because it deserves to grow. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I know, right? <laughs> Poetic as he's telling us that we're about to not get a salary for nine weeks. <laughs> right. Thanks. Thanks. Um, but you so when would you start rehearsals again well that's the thing because none of us are contractually obliged to go back because we um have shut down you know we the show officially had to close um so if everybody comes back which i'm assuming everybody will then i don't know maybe three four days but if there are casting replacements which i'm not sure whether there will be yet um could be a, a couple of weeks but they obviously would like to for financial reasons keep that as as short as possible you're not even sure like if it will happen it's just fingers crossed situation yeah tickets are on sale for march 15th and the goal is definitely to do what they can to come back march 15th um we haven't received an update he you know he was very frank he was like this is the goal who knows what might happen we've all had to be very flexible and hold everything very loosely over the last couple of years um they want to bring it back as soon as possible um but who knows? We're all gearing up for March 15th, but we're also realistic that it may be a little later than that. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. I... So tomorrow's Monday. What does a day in the life of Mark on uh, January 31st look like? Good question. So my <laughs> my pandemic pivot was to move into real estate. So um, I have been working uh, in real estate as a realtor with buyers and sellers for the last, I mean, it's coming up 
two years now, which is wild. Um, and so I was out today with a bunch of my buyer clients. It's, it's a tough time in real estate, not enough homes for sale and way too many buyers for the homes. So um, I was always planning to sort of navigate both careers side by side. So it's kind of nice that I have this to focus on. So tomorrow I shall be checking in with, I believe I have three sets of clients who are planning on submitting offers on homes. So that takes a lot of paperwork and office work, very different to going on stage and singing and acting and dancing. <laughs> and we're going to turn this into a TV show called... Selling selling New Jersey. Broadway uh, <laughs> standing room only. <laughs> yeah, great. Let's do it. <laughs> and, and you're currently uh, also remodeling your own home, correct? Yeah, there's been a load of projects. Um, we saw the kitchen. Yeah, the kitchen looks great. What do you think? You like it? It's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's so interesting. I was talking with, so our realtor, Denise, who used to always be a, uh, also be a performer, and her husband was in the industry as well. They both retired from performing. She was our, uh, our realtor and helped us find this place back in 2018. And we were reminiscing today, because I, she's now my colleague on the team, about like the tomato red countertops that we sort of thought were really charming when we came in here. And I, I said, gosh, now that I'm sort of like, it's my job to go in and see homes and have a much more sort of um, specific eye with regards to design and elevated looks, I, I, it's a complete different approach to real estate. I don't know whether I'll fully be able to settle in anywhere without really just considering a price and a number and value on things. It's, it's really shifted my perspective on things. Um, and, and so Justin is your husband, mm -hmm. uh, Justin Mortaliti. Justin Mortaliti, correct. Yeah. Where? Okay. I just, it's the whole, I want the story. How'd you meet? What's the, what's the deal? <laughs> Wait, do you guys know this story, any of this story at all? Because it's kind of pretty wild. I do not. I know nothing. Oh, maybe I just like set it up too. too I, the too bar much. is high now. Man. I know. Okay, yeah. here we go. Let's be storytelling, acting. Um, basically, my best friend, Becca um, Volkenbry, um, who I've known for a long, long time, she did a reading with Justin about four months prior to her saying, hey, I did this reading with this guy. I don't really know him very well. We went for a drink after the week workshop and he seemed really cool. We had a great chat and he keeps popping up on my Facebook feed and I feel like I should introduce the two of you. She fixes, you know, feels that she's a bit of a Cupid and set up a few successful couples. I was like, yes, please. I'm bored and I'm lonely. Um, and so she introduced us on Facebook and he had opened the Vegas production of Rock of Ages um, playing the lead role of Drew um, and did that for two years and then moved to New York City to do it on Broadway. But then the show shut down before he get to go, got to go into it. Um, so they asked him to go back to Vegas for four months to move the show from one venue to another. Um, and so he was leaving to go to Vegas the next day after we were introduced on Facebook. So I was like, okay, you're going there for, for three months, four months, whatever it was. Um, we'll message a couple of times. And if we're both still single, when you get back, we'll have an epic first date. So it was almost like the stakes just came, became really low and we continued messaging and then we started calling and FaceTiming and became like best friends. And it got to like six weeks in and couldn't bear not meeting him in person. So I booked a flight to Vegas to meet him in person. Um, this was just before flying back to the UK for Christmas um, that year. And 
the night before flying out there, I had to go to hospital to have an emergency appendectomy. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So, um, well, I was just desperate to meet this guy. Um, and I remember I told the, I was going to say a little white lie. I told a big lie to the nurse practitioner who I was tugging on his the gay heartstrings of this lovely gay Irish nurse practitioner. I was like, I'm really upset if I don't get to Vegas to see my boyfriend tomorrow, not my boyfriend, lying. Um, I won't get to see him for nine months because he's going to Australia to do a job. <laughs> Just <laughs> lying. Just lying with a like inflamed appendix. Um, and they bumped me up to the top of the surgery list. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I know. Sorry to anybody else who was like in a more critical <laughs> need Three than I was. Three people passed away due Unfortunately, to... Unfortunately, rest yeah. in peace. But we'll I have save a that husband now. <laughs> um, but basically, they just said, you know, we need to do keyhole surgery. We need to go in. If it's ruptured or perforated, you'll be with us a few days. If it's not, we should hopefully be able to remove it, stitch you up and get you on that flight. Now, when I arrived at the hospital, this is 9 p.m. My flight was 9 a.m. the next morning. I literally had my appendix removed. They gave me a shot of blood thinners, made me walk three laps around the ward to make sure that I was okay. And I went back to my apartment, packed a small suitcase and got in, a, in an Uber to, um, to the airport. And fortunately I was flying with Virgin America and they were, the, the staff took great care of me. I had a doctor's note. They had to wake me up every 30 minutes, give me water and make me go to the bathroom so that I could keep my blood circulation going to avoid clotting. Oh my God. <laughs> and I arrived there and like, I never met this guy. I can't stand up straight. I've got iodine stains all over my, my stomach. I haven't showered in 48 hours or been for a shit in 48 hours. I'm like, hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> and he was randomly driving a pickup truck so he had to help hoist me into the car um, so love at first sight i don't think so but it was it was very unique <laughs> but uh, i will I say had we uh, dating in new york is so tough because you know there's so many people there i do think that the fact that we got to know each other just as two human beings without any physical um, contact. You know, there was no first kiss. There was no, when are we going to sleep together for the first time? We just really fell in love before even meeting in person. And I do think that that's why we have such a great chemistry and relationship because the, the stakes were lower on all, everything else. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine uh, that first date with a recently removed appendix. <laughs> and like, it can't have been a lot of fun um, were you on painkillers and stuff? Yeah, I was. Um, that, one, that was before going back to wherever he was staying. We went to CVS to pick up my prescriptions. <laughs> They'd called them into the CVS that was local to him in Vegas. I mean, how outrageous is that? Um, so, I mean, yeah, we still had a really good time. I was there for like four, four days, I think. And my friends were like, are you mad? What if you don't like him? I was like, well... I already know that I like him, but also I'm in Vegas. Like I can have fun by myself if we end up not hitting it off, but that wasn't an issue at all. Um, so you basically were like, I need you to take care of me and convalesce me. Um, it was his audition you. to be my husband. Right, right, <laughs> and I need a bath. Yeah, <laughs> bathe me. I mean, I had COVID at the beginning of this month and I was like, oh, this feels familiar. You're taking care of me again. <laughs> Oh no, you got the, the the COVID? I did, it felt inevitable. I was like, oh, we're probably gonna get it at some point. I was actually, so 
the timing was very unfortunate. It was my birthday on January 2nd. And on January 2nd was when we had the company meeting to say that we were only going to be running one more week with the show before the shutdown happened. So I was like, okay, we can make the most of this last week. And then later that night, the COVID safety manager called me and said, you have COVID, so you can't come into work all of this week. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't even see everybody. <laughs> now, you'd mentioned earlier that you were talking about uh, flying back to the UK for Christmas. Yeah. Now, what part of the K... <laughs> it's actually from North Wales. Um, North so, Wales. Yeah, I was just back there. I got, I was, I just got back from there on, wait, my God, what day? Tuesday. Um, so yeah, I was back for 10 days. So I try and get back as often as possible. My mom's living with dementia at the moment. And so any opportunities I get to just go spend quality time with her is a real treat. And the pandemic caused a lot of restrictions, you know, obviously. Um, so yeah, I grew up on a sheep farm in the hills of North Wales originally and left home when I was 16 to go to theatre school. Um, so it's a very, very different world, a very different life. Um, very slow paced, very small town. I grew up in a village. There was, I was one of four people in my year at, at school, um, primary school. So like, yeah, very, very tiny. And it's kind of wild to think how drastically different life is now living, you know, just outside of one of the biggest cities in the world. <laughs> you kind of created this uh, beautiful uh, sort of organization to kind of help Welsh artists. Right, uh, yeah. yeah? God, you've done your research. Yeah. <laughs> well, we also listened to, you know, a couple of songs in Welsh tonight. And I, I I don't know how to approach this, but I need, I want to talk about the language. Yeah. So all of my education was um, through the Welsh language. My, all my dad's side of the family are Welsh. I still speak Welsh to my dad. Um, it's... Uh, the Wales is known locally as the land of song. So I kind of grew up with access to singing in choirs. I used to conduct choirs at school as well. There was always access to music. If you wanted to play an instrument, it was really accessible, which I took for granted, of course. I took advantage of, but like didn't know how, how lucky and fortunate we all were to have that at our disposal. Um, and then... But I never really, I remember seeing the national tour of Fame the Musical and it was the equivalent of someone else seeing, I don't know what, like <laughs> Lady Gaga now or Beyonce, like they were superstars to me. And I had no idea that people could get paid to do what I was doing as a hobby professionally um, until I was 15 and I went down to London to do a summer school at the college that I eventually ended up training at, Lane Theatre Arts. Um, and it just became a real passion of mine. I've always loved teaching and I wanted to, it's like a two, two hour, 45 minute train ride, a four or five hour drive away from the West End and from London where I grew up. So I created an annual um, musical theatre summer school, a summer camp called West End in Wales. And I would bring a couple of West End performers and teachers back to, um, we used to host it in my high school and do a week long summer camp, basically, and singing, acting and dancing. We'd put on a an hour long showcase at the end of it just to try and, um, make the West End feel a little more accessible to these to this young talent that was there. And I was just messaging recently with Stefan, one of the 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 boys at the time. He's now in his in his thirties, um, and he's he was just saying just how phenomenally successful so many of those those kids have become. Multiple people in the West End and on TV and stuff now. So it's it's something I'm really proud of. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You basically created for them what you wish kind of was there for you. 
That's exactly what I used to say. I wanted to provide something that I wish I'd have had access to growing up. That's that's amazing. Giving back like that and and thinking of the broader community. Um, and when all of you win awards, I will take credit. I know. <laughs> I'll say, and, I knew that and money. <laughs> right, right, right. So if someone so if someone says you were you Mark are speaking with an English accent, that would be kind of incorrect. Correct. I mean, as far as accents are concerned, my British accent is sort of all over the place. If I was to speak with a Welsh accent, it would be much more melodic and kind of really over-articulated like this. The consonants are really overpronounced, um, And so I, I've never really had that strong a Welsh accent. I've just sort of had a generalized British. Now there's a little rivalry between Wales and England. And so if someone says, oh, you're English, I do correct them. I say, no, I'm Welsh or I'm British. Because the UK, Great Britain, is England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. So I'm not technically from the country of England. I'm from Wales or the Great Britain, United Kingdom as, right. as, as a collective. I So thank you for the education on that. Um, <laughs> Americans are very, like, not, I'm, I won't speak in broad terms. I'm very miseducated or uneducated about yeah. as much geography as I want to be. And, and so like when we were doing our research on you- My and, education was the crown. Yeah, I mean, well, that's yeah. one part of it. But um, <laughs> so when I was doing the research on you and I saw this stuff about Welsh TV, stupid American me said, well, I, I don't understand. Isn't it all just BBC? <laughs> Is yeah. that it? Well, there's yeah. a whole Welsh channel called Espedorec, S4C, which is, you know, the equivalent of ITV, BBC, um, but it's all Welsh language. Um, and, you know, it's a much smaller um, network, it's a much smaller channel, but, you know, they have the Welsh news and the weather and entertainment programs and game shows and that sort of stuff all through the Welsh, through the Welsh language. Um, and so I, um, one of the things I'm most proud of is um, I there was a TV show, created a kids TV show called Macaroni, like Macaroni, but with my name in it, um, which is basically with the idea being that Macaroni, this character is a sort of um, a fictional carriage character. He's a composer who's, um, the idea is that he's composed every song that exists in the world. And so he's, <laughs> how, I don't know, because he's pretty dumb and so like the other characters surrounding him educate him on a lot of things you know how to tie your shoelaces and what are bubbles and what is this thing called Christmas and by the end of every 12 minute episode he's composed a new song about it and the idea was to encourage the youth of Wales to not sing these you know old old anthems and hymns and things that they didn't really feel were um were appealing to them and to create new nursery rhymes and catchy tunes that they would enjoy singing in school and be educated. So that was 52 episodes we shot in seven weeks, um, which was really intense. Um, but you know, they, they, they cycled them now. They have basically every 26 weeks, um, they put out an episode a week and then they, you know, they take a six months off and then they go again with the next 26 weeks. And so that's sort of going to be happening for a long, long time now, I think, as long as they want it. And it was a buyout as well. So they don't pay me anything ongoing. So I'll probably be watching that when I'm in my 70s. <laughs> <laughs> um, my So my mom comes from England and uh, her whole side of the family. And there's a town with the longest name 
in Wales. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I used to be able to say that probably not that correctly because <laughs> it was a thing that my Nana always used to say. And to me, it was like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yeah. Once you know, once you've learned it, you never really does, forget it, right? Does it mean something? Yes. Um, I mean, all of the Welsh towns um, and and villages translate to something. I wouldn't be able to tell you what that one translates to. We abbreviate it to Llanfair PG <laughs> because <laughs> that's the second two words start with P and G. So no one really says the whole thing. It's mostly known as like when you arrive at that train station, it's the longest sign ever to fit in all of the letters of this, you know, supercalifragilistic type word. Um, I, I was obsessed with it when I was a kid and I used to say it like trying to impress people. I don't know. I, that's that's <laughs> your party of, trick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, what was the geography question you wanted to ask, honey? I was, I was trying to ask you where Catherine Fly was from in the UK. Oh, Blue, Bluesbury. Blues? Blueberry. 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 Blueberry? Isn't that a, isn't that a fruit? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it, it's also apparently a town. Her town in the UK... It's a friend of ours who we've had on like, the, the literally show. looks oh, like right. Harry, looks like Harry Potter land oh, from like the 1500s or something. Yeah, there's a lot of little cute towns like that, and that's one of the things that I really am grateful before moving over here that I got to do a few national tours of the UK as well because I toured America and it's like it's so vastly different wherever you go and then when you go to the uk and the actors are complaining that they have to do a, a two-hour drive from one venue to the other and i'm like gosh you haven't seen nothing a four-hour flight every venue in the uk in the us oh but yeah God, these I... little towns like york and bath and malvern like really really like old so much history there amazing amazing architecture and culture so, Mark, what actually was the moment that you had an opportunity or a window to come to America? Had you yeah. already had a job? So I was um, doing Ghost the Musical in London and auditioned for the West End production of Book of Mormon um, and was initially offered the original West End cast, but they couldn't find an Elder Cunningham to match me. Um, and so... I had 13 auditions and it took them a long time to um, to make the decision and give me some uh, some confirmation on it. And by that point, they had found this actor, Chris O'Neill, who was American. And so they were like, well, if we're going to do an equity exchange, we know that we have two solid actors in Jared Gertner and Gavin Creel on the national tour. That's more of a safe best, the safe bet for us having seen them on stage, knowing they'll get great reviews. Let's take them over to the UK and bring Mark over to the national tour here to do the show. Um, and full disclosure, I had sort of been messed around a lot with, with uh, the negotiations and they left me hanging for a while. And I turned the show down three times um, because I, you know, it, it didn't make sense for me with regards to the deal they were offering, but also I was just terrified. It was right at the very beginning. Book of Mormon had maybe been on Broadway a year, won the nine Tony Awards, and and I just didn't know whether I was, you know, whether I would bite, was biting off more than I could chew. I was terrified. And then they offered me a deal that was too good to turn down. I was like, oh, shit, I guess I'm getting on a plane. Um, but ultimately, it was, I mean, obviously a life changer. I haven't been 
I haven't lived in the UK since. I only agreed to do a six-month contract, and I did three six-month contracts, got my green card while I was doing it, and moved to New York at the end of it. Now, when you're doing a show that is maybe, maybe offensive, maybe, yeah. to a group of people who uh, practice that religion, do you like end up getting like letters that say, screw you? Honest, not me personally. Um, I know there were a few times, depending where we were in the country, we would see a couple of people, much less than I was anticipating before being in the show, to be honest. I thought that we'd have a lot of people walking out. Occasionally, a couple of people would leave if they were sensitive. Um, but ultimately, and this is what I always celebrated about the show, is it's, you know, it's Matt Stone and Trey Parker. It's the South Park humor. It's deliberately um, provocative. But they have such a deep respect for the, the art of musical theater. They really know their stuff on how to write a really great book musical and at the end of it the moral of the story is really really wonderful um and i think that's what people take away is that you know there's a a lot of jabs at multiple sort of um groups and if you just take it on you know take it on the chin and and laugh with it as opposed to be offended by it by the end of it you see that it's it's not just offensive humor it's a story that is really touching and worth being told yeah i mean there's so much truth in so much comedy already that um this kind of satire of this show i mean i think i when i heard the show i thought some of the choices were just brilliant yeah I Just mean, the, the, the Hasadiga Ibowai, um song, which is where they say, you know, F you God in the ass, mouth and C word. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is happening. And it's offensive when you take it out of context, right? For anyone who's listening to this who haven't seen the Book of Mormon, they, their ears will have probably melted off. But you have to understand where that comes in and how it plays such an important um, part of setting the tone of the piece for the payoff at the end. Um, and they've made some changes, apparently. I haven't seen the show since the Broadway shutdown happened, but they've made some significant changes, apparently, just to be slightly more respectful with regards to some of the racist humor that was in there. Um, so I don't know specifically what those changes are, but, um, you know, the show has such a huge brand and such a huge reputation. I think they didn't necessarily need to do it. Um, from from their perspective, I think from an audience perspective, it is appreciated that they put the effort in to make the changes, right? They acknowledge that the, even though it's a product that's been very, very successful, it's still within their realm to make the um, appropriate um, adjustments to it. Right. I also think it's very, it's kind of a, a smart strategy that if you're going to write a show like that, um, the, the reason, I, I mean, besides Nine Tonys and everything else, that's the place to see it is Broadway or one of the tours. It's not like this is going to be done, you know, in high yeah. schools or regionally. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, so yeah. it's, I mean, it, where it might be done regionally by, by certain theaters, it's not going to be like your, your Oklahoma or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very niche and that's the place to see it. Yeah. Um, that's that show. The, I'll never forget Matthew, when you and I first like listened to the cast uh, recording and we're just like, in tears laughing at like in disbelief yeah. well i was raised super duper 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 religious uh on the protestant uh side almost looking like a quaker 
uh, person sort of getting off the, the boat as a pilgrim. Really? But my, yeah, but I do have relatives that are Mormon. Okay. And being a little bit familiar with the Mormon uh, belief, uh, and like all beliefs, I like to challenge myself, uh, not others, I like to challenge myself of what I believe um, in the myth stories from all of them. Yeah. But um, I, I knew some of the truth that was in some of the writing of the Book of Mormon, which is why yeah. I thought it was so clever. I was like, yeah. holy shit, this is like... They're actually just telling just, the story. Yeah, we're just... I mean, this is like someone taking the book of whatever from the Bible and just literally doing it. Be like, well, that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ultimately, the message of the show is it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe in. If what you believe in makes your life easier and makes you a better person, then by all means, go and do it. Um, my, you know, where I have an issue with it is when people are so devoutly committed to a religion or a cause and they are adamant that everybody else must agree with them. That's where it, it becomes problematic. And I think Book of Mormon is based on, you know, inspired by the Mormon religion, but ultimately it's pretty universal in its message, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And as a as a non-American coming in to do this show about Mormonism, which is, you know, it was an American founded religion. Like I was pretty ignorant. I had to do a lot of research during the um, the audition process and during rehearsal. And, um, you know, we toured through Rochester, New York, which is, you know, where Joseph Smith discovered the 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 plates. And it's like. Oh my goodness! And we we were shown around by Mormons on their missions, and it, it just became so like human and real to me. And it moved so much further beyond just the satirical comedy of it. You know, it right. was it was really quite amazing. I was disappointed that I I left the show just before it was scheduled to go to Salt Lake City. I would have really liked to see the reaction there. It was apparently really positive. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It's surprising, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask about another show. This is why I love doing these. You know, we we got to meet you and work with you during the fix at Signature Theater. One, two, three. <laughs> but I, you know, we were all in the middle of a, a very, you know, short rehearsal process, then a run. There, there wasn't a lot of getting to know you time. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of this stuff that you've did before the fix and we'll get to the fix but um you took over the role of sam wheat in the london production of ghost yeah i had another friend who was up for the oda may brown role at a, in the american production and she had to go see it a lot and i heard about i've never seen it but i've heard about a lot of the magic and different oh, stuff yeah. tell us about how crazy doing uh, ghost was well it was awesome i was doing fiero um, in Wicked at the time when I went to watch the original London cast with Richard Fleishman and Casey Levy playing um, Sam and Molly. And it was one of those moments, one of the only moments in my career when I was like, I need to do that. So I literally, between watching the matinee and going to the, the, um, the Apollo Victoria where Wicked was playing to do my show, I went to a music shop and I bought a guitar. I was like, he plays a guitar, he plays on chain melody on the guitar, I need to learn that because I'm going to play this role. It was like this deep sort of calling. Um, and 
long story short, I ended up booking it. So fortunate that it ended up working out that they were looking for, that they were taking it to Broadway with Casey and Richard and they needed two people to come in sort of like in a quick turnaround. And I was just about to finish Wicked and it lined up, I think I doubled up for like two weeks maybe. And Siobhan Dillon and I took over the the lead roles like a, a month before the official cast change. Um, and so it was a very quick rehearsal process. Um, and oh gosh, it was amazing. It's the last role that I played in London before coming over here. And I just, I just loved it. The music, I think it was, it was the first time, you know, when I was in, I was in the ensemble of Wicked and played Fierro for one performance in the 12 month contract that I had. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Cause I wasn't sure if I wanted to go more towards sort of directing and dance captain, that sort of like the, the creative route or whether I wanted to be more of an actor. Um, and so going on for Fierro for that one night meant that like, Oh, that's, that's what I want to, that's what I want to commit to. And so I went away, did a few jobs, a couple of national tours, and I was touring with Oklahoma when, um, Wicked asked if I'd come and audition again for Fierro and so that's when I went back and it felt like I'd sort of like gone away done my work come back to play this supporting role and then to go on to lead a, with a big role like Sam in Ghost I mean he didn't leave the stage I didn't leave the stage um, and it was just amazing I learned so much and I think that's what I love the most about what we do is where I get an opportunity to learn new skills or to to just constantly be evolving. I'm, I do a lot of teaching and I always say, you know, we're never going to be fully cooked. And if you feel that you're fully cooked, it's time for you to just sort of retire, <laughs> in my is, opinion. Is there a huge difference between working in the West End versus the Broadway? Is there a difference in rehearsal hours is there a difference in structurally support is it yeah it's i mean the there are some um sort of business differences in that people in the west end are severely underpaid um people in uh, in the broader community get compensated a lot um better because you can't be on broadway um without being a member of the actors equity union um in the uk you don't have to be a member of the union in order to work and so they have a lot less leverage a lot less power to make some you know some long overdue changes with regards to salaries and that sort of stuff and so um with regards to talent i don't think there's any difference i think there's a larger talent pool in america so i do believe it's harder to get a job over here um the biggest shift that i sort of acknowledge because i get asked this question quite often and it's in the audition process more than the rehearsal process and the the show when I was auditioning in the UK, I would all I would go in with the material and I feel like I would almost every time get a work session, the director or um, choreographer or music director or whatever would work with me and just give me a couple of adjustments. And after come, moving to New York, finishing Book of Mormon, my agents here would send me in for something and I it would be very short. There would be very little, you know, generally speaking, um, funnily enough, Auditioning for The Fix was one of the most interactive auditions I had, and which is why I was really excited about coming to DC to do it, but we'll talk about that. Um, but in general, it's sort of an in and out, nice to meet you, here's me singing some of the material, maybe one of the four scenes that you've sent me, I will do, and then you leave. 
And then my agent would say, oh yeah, they were, they really liked you, but they're going to look, f they just wanted something with a bit more vulnerability. And I'm like, well, they could have asked for that in the room. But point being, I think the talent pool is so big here that it's more convenient and it's easier for them to just wait for someone to just come in and deliver the goods that they didn't even know they were looking for. Right. Um, and I don't know whether it's lazy directing, being frank, um, or like such, because I, I work, I'm um, associate director of the play that goes wrong and have a much more, uh, a much deeper respect for the casting process and just really understand how important casting is. Um, in the UK, I felt like I had a couple opportunities where maybe I wasn't the right person for the role, but they gave me the chance and they, we, we worked together for me to find, find something that fit. Whereas in the, in New York, someone will come in and just deliver something that is almost opening night ready. I think. Um, you left the book of Mormon tour. You didn't make it to Salt Lake city because you had to come to DC. Is that correct? Yeah, DC was calling. Was that your first time in DC? Yeah, it, I mean, we'd, it was my first time at Signature. We had toured with Book of Mormon through DC. We were at the Kennedy Center for six weeks. Um, so that was amazing. Um, and that was one of the highlights of the tour, actually. I loved being in DC. Um, well, and the Kennedy Center, you know, is like the oh. grand poopa of you know, architecture and what oh, for real and touring houses as well. Like to like I'd before doing the Book of Mormon, I'd only ever visited New York City. By the time I'd finished that year and a half tour, I'd been to 36 cities in 26 states. Wow. And that's more than most Americans have, have seen. It's just Totes. such a privilege. Yeah. But uh, the, you said the audition process for the fix was interactive and interesting. T uh, tell me what I'm very curious about that now. Well, I don't know. I think it was just because I wasn't that familiar with the show. I'd learned the material. I'd familiarized myself with the material that they'd sent. And just sort of, it was like, it was one of those where I was like, I'd really like to do this. If I get it, great. If I don't, it's not going to like really affect sort of my life. I want to go down there and do it for this summer. But if not, I'll be available for something else. And so I think I had just lowered the stakes a little bit. Um, and... Eric Schaefer was the director and was just really, really um, sort of cooperative and interactive in the in the in the audition process. He was just supportive, and I felt like, oh, this is this is this would be a collaborative environment. Um, and yeah, it was just fun. And initially, I hadn't booked the role. They gave, they offered it to somebody else first, who then ended up going. I think it was Jake Boyd who was supposed to do it initially, um, and. So I got the call maybe 10 days before we actually started rehearsals. I was in the UK at the time and um, just visiting family. And they said, oh, the guy who they'd offered it to dropped out and I was still available. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, but then, because at the end of Book of Mormon, for the last four months, I was really, really struggling. Um, I had real vocal anxiety, performance anxiety. I was really going through a lot of depression. I'm able to articulate exactly what my experience was now in hindsight. At the time, I was just freaking the fuck out because I was like, oh, my God, I'm broken and I'm really not enjoying doing this job anymore, which is why. I mean, I could have stayed with Book of Mormon for a long, long time and <laughs> been a very wealthy man by now because they take care of their people. But my mental health just wasn't up to it. It was just too much carrying that responsibility and singing that role eight shows a week and touring to different places. And so... um. 
point being, then when I came down to DC, I don't know whether any of you picked up on this, but I was terrified. I was terrified. Um, I remember going back into that apartment that you get to, you know, walk it's right next door to Signature where Christine Cheryl and I were staying and would be like having panic attacks and things, just thinking I'm no way going to be able to sing this score. Because I hadn't been sent the full score either. I didn't realize just how much Cal Chandler sang in that show. <laughs> it was a lot. No, I had no idea you were terrified. You didn't telegraph that at all. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I shared with one of my students recently that, um, you know, what people, how you're perceived on the outside doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same as what is happening on the inside. And I have this vivid memory of walking out on the first day. Um, I walked out of the, the big rehearsal studio at Signature and I walked into the bathroom by myself and I was sort of like caught sort of off guard by my um, reflection. This is going to sound like such a douchey thing. But in the mirror, I was like, oh, he looks like a leading man. But inside, I felt like the vulnerable sort of um, uh, bullied tr um, teenager who didn't have feel like he fit in I was just it was the inner child in me that was terrified and it did not compute with what I was actually presenting on the outside it's fascinating isn't it when, yeah. what what was the moment that kind of gave way and and you kind of relaxed into the role because you were I mean magnificent in it thank you um I don't know that I ever fully really relaxed into it I started to enjoy it um that once I sort of felt like you know, I'd gotten through like a good few performances. And I was like, okay, because I feel like where my brain went uh, often during Book of Mormon and during that time and the way that, and the work that I've had to do to sort of recover from this place was it was as if I was on vocal rations. So as if like if I sung too much on a Friday that I would have used up too much of my fuel tank of vocal ability. And the next day or the five show weekend, I would not be able to get through. It was almost like I would run out of voice, which would, was a complete sort of discredit, discredit to my skill set and my, my um, vocal technique. But that's sort of where my brain went was like, oh, if you you might get through tonight, but you're going to probably be screwed for both shows tomorrow. And it was just this constant fear of at what point am I going to fuck up? At what point are they going to catch me out and realize that I'm not, I'm actually a fraud and I'm not capable of this. Um, I've been in therapy for the last nine, 10 years. And I talk very openly about it because I think the demand that is put on leading actors with regards to um, vocal vocal demand you know think alphabas thinking of the elsas in frozen having to do eight shows a week five show weekends and the fact that you know a performance will be put on youtube and then all of your riffs will be compared to every other person that's played alpha like there's just a lot of weight that comes with these things and um, yeah, it was just it was just really, really stressful. But eventually, I mean, I'm so glad that I did that show because it was a heavy vocal show for me. And it was like ripping off the Band-Aid. Um, right. I got to know Christine Cheryl, who played my mother, even though there's only like, what, 11 years difference between us. <laughs> um, and 
she and I were the only two not um, local actors, so we were the only ones staying in in the apartments. So she and I got to know each other pretty well, and I was I was grateful that I could confide in her about how nervous I was with that stuff. But um, no, it was yeah, I was so so glad that I got to do that gig. I rem I remember that show in the sense that Bobby Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, ensemble, Rachel, Dan Manning, like oh, everything. it was great, Tracy. Yeah, yeah, I felt like it was a really strong, safe, hardworking, but really fun yeah. room, ready to make changes, ready to just do whatever to make it work. And I thought the storytelling of it and the score and everything was really a fun kind of evening. Yeah, yeah, and they did a we did a cast recording, didn't we? That never. Oh my god, that's right. They recorded, I think, the last four, five performances, I think, which was like, I just, <laughs> you just reminded me, I've just reminded myself that like, oh yeah, I did feel like I settled into something until they told me they were going to record my vocals. And then it was like, oh fuck, here comes the anxiety again. Right. Yeah, um, they, I guess nothing ever came of that. I, I think it was Cameron's decision, Cameron McIntosh, because he ultimately had the rights to it. And I think he just decided that ultimately he was, it was not going to, it was not going to go any further. Which is a shame. Who knows? Maybe eventually. It's so interesting, though, because it was 2015. We were on the eve of Trump. And I mean, it was it was a different. Um, God, I mean, it was that, 20 what? 2015. It's been seven, six years. Yeah, yeah seven years. And this, yeah. And I remember we were doing some press to because you remember they actually did like like locally they did like a Cal Chandler for president campaign. They were like yeah. the yard signs and stuff everywhere. It was so clever. Um, and I remember doing a lot of press to promote the show. And I remember saying, I mean, I'm just, they were, they, I was asked something along the lines of as a non-American, how are you in, in sort of immersing yourself in the political world here so that you can sort of get in under the skin of Cal Chandler? And I just said, well, I'm just deeply inspired by Donald Trump right now, <laughs> not thinking that it would ever amount to anything because it was like, had he just been announced that he was going to run or there was rumors of it or something? It was very early in that process. Gosh, if only we'd have known what we were about to get into, hey? I know, I know. I think that's what I, I mean... I don't think that show, I don't know. I don't know. I, I try to imagine that show now. Yeah. The economy, crime, taxes. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Insurrections. <laughs> it, yeah, we didn't, we didn't count on that one. Um, wow. Uh, so I'm, I'm mindful of your time, but I just want to hit just a few other things yeah, here. Please. I, I did not get to see The Play Goes Wrong, but I it's one of those. Do you see a theme? I, I don't ever have time to see things. Um, <laughs> But I, I heard everything I heard about the play goes wrong was like it sounded like it was right up my alley. Can you discuss that a little? Yeah, I think it would have been actually. Um, it's exactly as right up my alley. It was so that was my Broadway debut. Um, and it's basically a group of amateur actors putting on a play and everything that could go wrong goes wrong whether it is people you know they're amateur actors and the the great thing about it and the reason i love to still be working on it from the uh, the creative standpoint is that it's not just shtick for shtick's sake there's a lot of very very funny physical and sort of like written humor in there but it's 
eight real people like the um they just a lot of it is based on uh, is inspired by the clowning work that the creators um did at lambda they all went to school together the original um group of people and so you know they had the august clowns and the naive clowns so there's these characters who like i played chris bean who is the the director of the play and the head of the drama society and so he's just an asshole who knows everything and is you know i got to shout at the audience and improv with them and telling them to shut up and like there's those sorts of characters and then there's other people like the role of um dennis who plays the butler who just doesn't really have any friends and just wants to maybe be asked for a slice of pizza at the end of the play. And so <laughs> you, when you're basing it on like real people like that, you can really get to invest in sort of wanting these, these amateur people to do well. And you strive for them to get through to the end of this piece where ultimately the entire set falls apart around them. It's, it's brilliantly written. And I think it's, one of the only things, you know, you talk about Book of Mormon with regards to like the sense of humor. There are a few things that are like really, really funny, genuinely funny and completely family friendly and wholesome. And that's that, you know, it really was fun for everybody. And whoever did their marketing uh, campaign, even the, the like the font that goes wrong, you yeah. know, the, it was all brilliant. Well, uh, that's Kevin McCollum. That's how I was basically asked to come in and do the reading of Mrs. Doubtfire because I had a relationship with him. Um, so it's very similar with Mrs. Doubtfire. He said, you know, you can't the marketing can't say that a show is funny. You can't tell us about the humor. The marketing has to be funny. The evidence has to be there so that people go like, oh my God, why is that sign upside down? Oh, yeah. it's a play that goes wrong. Oh, I immediately know what that brand is and I will buy a ticket. It's Absolutely. so clever. That's, that branding was what made me interested in it in the first place. Yeah. Um, and, and so here we are back to Doubtfire. So we did have the, we know Brad Oscar who's in your oh, cast. Right. Um, and we had him on the show, but uh, we're, uh, since it's a new show and I have not seen, uh, here's the theme, I have not seen it. Not many people have yet. Um, is So you're Stuart, um, yes. played by Pierce Brosnan in the film, which is brilliant casting. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Please tell me there's a drive-by fruiting song. <laughs> yeah, there's not a song. Um, there is. It's a run-by fruiting moment. When it's in the movie, he gets hit in the back of the head with a lime. In the musical, it's an apple. How brutal is that? Ouch. <laughs> I know. Um, it's cleverly done, though. I mean, I walk off into the wing, and Rob McClure as Mrs. Doubtfire throws the apple into the wing, and I come back on with a second apple as if I've miraculously caught it after it hit my head. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of the iconic um, lines and moments from the movie are in there, you know, the whole time, the whole time. <laughs> like, there, there's a lot of those moments that have that have remained, but... Ultimately, it is very much a story that is being told in the present day. And, you know, the re a lot of people, when I was first asked to do the reading, I was like, why on earth are they doing this? The movie's great. It's just going to be another one of those movie musicals that they're just trying to, you know, capitalize on the brand. And ultimately, I didn't know that apparently the statistic is that 50% of American married couples end in divorce. Um, and... You know, the for people who aren't familiar with Mrs. Doubtfire, it's about a married couple who go through a divorce because they're struggling in their marriage and the effect that that has on their three kids. Right. Um, 
and the dad dresses up as a nanny in order to get access to his his kids because he, he it's his only option and oh my god when you start to they really shine a lens on the effect that it has on the children and when they start singing you know there's a lot of heartache and emotion that comes with family um dynamics like that and it lends itself to be sung plus the farcical stuff of you know you have the the man who's pulling the wool over that his family's eyes and the stakes are so high when he has you know his court liaison is at his house and he's pretending that this nanny that he's pretending to be is his sister and he's changing from one outfit to the other and back again and back again. And Rob McClure is miraculous in the role. He does, I think, 34 costume changes every performance, some of them right in front of the audience. It's it's a huge, it's like a behemoth task and he does it phenomenally well. Well, I, I really hope that um, everyone will get to see it soon. Uh, yeah, me too. It, I mean, things are looking better with the COVID rates and everything. So fingers crossed. Um, I think so. I'm confident that if, you know, if any producers can pull this off, we are definitely, we have the right people at the helm. That's great. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed. I will say that uh, before we sign off, Matthew just showed me a map of North Wales and it's, it's just seconds away from Liverpool, where my yes. mom is from. Oh, I didn't know she's from Liverpool. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I fly into Manchester, so that's even further away from Liverpool. So Liverpool's 45 minutes from where I grew up. That's what good. I always say to people, for anybody listening, put the le- look at the palm of your left hand and tuck your thumb in, to, like, close to, to your hand. The fingers are Scotland, the palm is England, and the thumb at the side is Wales. That's where Wales is, and that's where I always describe that, where, I'm, where I'm from. That's good to know. That's that's brilliant. I'll I'll remember that now. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We appreciate catching up with you and getting I'm to I'm so work. glad you invited me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. We love you and we hope to see you up on the Broadway and Mrs. Doubtfire soon. Yes. Yeah, let me know when you're in the city. Much love to your new husband and your mom in Wales. Thank you. Love you guys. Appreciate love you it. Too. Bye. 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 Thanks so much, Mark, for joining us. Uh, it was great to hear your voice again. Great to catch up. Hope that uh, the reopening of Mrs. Doubtfire does well. Um, if you want to learn more about us, you can visit www.connersmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an ER. You can also follow us on Facebook and TikTok under Connor and Smith, again, with an ER. Please rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. Share it with your friends. Put it on your message boards. Do whatever you do where you put things places. Um, Really helps us out a lot. Um, The Olympics are still happening. Uh, Are you just biting your nails? We just saw, like, a bobsled team, like, crash, flip over. That's... this, This is... We've said this earlier in the podcast. These Olympics, like, are very stressful the winter because you know everything's on ice and if you fall it's like big time serious mm-hmm. but we watch we watch anyway um all right well we will see you next time bye bye, bye.